Amen. Well, we are in John chapter 4. Today we'll start in verse 16 as we continue this encounter of Jesus and the Samaritan woman by the well. And we're watching before our eyes the drawing of a sinner into the gracious love of the Savior. And what a beautiful thing it is to see and witness when God begins to draw a person to Himself. What a beautiful thing it was in your own life when God began to reveal Himself to you. When He began to expose and point out sin in your life, the fact that sin offends a holy God. He began to call you by His grace. He began to show you what it means to be forgiven. And what a beautiful thing it is for us to witness that in those around us. Those in our families, those that we love, those in the congregation, when we can see and point out with our eyes, and I see God doing a work in so-and-so. I see the things that they did not desire before now become the joy of their heart. I see God ministering, performing a spiritual work. It's a beautiful thing to witness. And Jesus, our Lord, as He deals with sinners, does so in a variety of ways. It's not a, a one-size-fits-all approach that Jesus has as He deals with with those that need salvation. We see when He deals with the Pharisees, He seeks to expose their hypocrisy. He seeks to point out to them that they are not living like the people that they think they are, like they say they are, like they proclaim to be. When He deals with the self-righteous, He points out their lawlessness, the fact that they are indeed lawbreakers. And today as He deals with this woman from Samaria, He begins to gently open her eyes to her sin. But the consistent theme through all of that is that Jesus has come to shine light into the darkness. He has come to expose wickedness and to reveal to men their need for a Savior. And as He does this, we see in the Bible and we experience in our own lives, some convicted by their sin respond to the mercy of God with broken hearts before their Creator in humble repentance. Others, convicted by their sin, harden their hearts, reject His mercy, and continue on in their rebellion. But be that as it may, we see that dealing with sin is a key part of the ministry of Jesus and continues today to be a key part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as He is the one that has come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, judgment. So we're going to continue to look at this evangelistic encounter of our Lord with this Samaritan woman, and we will see it today from the vantage point or from the problem of sin and the fact that Jesus has come to deal with sin. He has come to expose, He has come to remove, and He has come to transform. So as we jump back into the text, you will remember that He has offered this woman living water. He's there by the well. She He's thirsty. He asked her for a drink. And he says, if you would have known me and what it is that I offer, you would have asked for me a drink and I would have given you living water that would well up in you till eternal life. And finally, she says, okay, sir, give me some of this water. She responds in the positive and he now moves on to point out some issues in her life that he wants to bring attention. Because we see that an offer of the gospel always includes, always reveals the sinfulness of 
man so that we can see the truth of the good news. So John chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him very keenly, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Whenever we hear a story about a conversion, about someone being saved, it always includes a revelation of the sin in their heart. Some people before Christ lived lives of obvious depravity, of obvious debauchery, even to a watching world, to non-believers. So yeah, that person, that's what a sinner looks like. To others, on the surface, they were good moral people. They were upstanding members of society. But in all circumstances, when one is saved, there is some recognition that we have offended a holy God. And this was no different in the year 386. About 350 years after the cross, there was a man named Augustine. You may know him as Augustine. Or you may have heard the, the name St. Augustine or St. Augustine as a Roman Catholic would call him. But he was spending some time with a friend of his in Milan, Italy. Now, Augustine had lived a life of immorality, a life of depravity, chasing women and just standard foolishness that the world offers. He was a man of the world in the fullest sense. And he began to get involved with different philosophies, with different sort of sub-Christian heretical groups, because he was seeking to answer some of the tougher questions in life. And the main question that he was trying to find an answer to was, where does evil come from? Where does evil come from? His mom was a believer, his father was not, so he, he grew up exposed to Christianity. And he was seeking to answer that question, where does evil come from? And he was on, as he was on that quest, he began to realize how sinful of a person he was in his own heart. How immoral of a life that he was actually living. One day as he was in Milan with his friend, walking through a courtyard, he heard the words, take up and read. Take up and read, or pick it up and read. And it was in a child's voice, and he figured it was some children playing a game. But as he thought about that more and more, he thought that this is no child's game or no child's song that he had ever heard. And he thought maybe this was actually God telling him to take up and read the Scripture. So he got hold of a Bible, and he opened up, first thing that he saw, and it was Romans 13, 13. And it said, it said this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And in that moment, the revelation to his own soul of the weight of his sin the reality of that before a holy God led him straight to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And he was saved. And as Jesus deals with our sin problem, it starts with the exposing of sin. It starts with shining light into the sin in our lives. And I think we all would attest, we all would probably agree, that this is often extremely painful. 
I don't ask for amens, but can I get a, an amen to that? That when, when, when God begins to expose sin in our life, whether it's at conversion or now as a Christian, it is often extremely painful. Amen. <laughs> because sometimes maybe we've deceived ourselves, right? And we've told ourselves, you know, I really am not all that bad. I'm really a pretty decent guy. I mean, because the truth is this, the reality is this. We can always point to someone else and say, I'm not that. I mean, the guy on death row can always point to somebody else and say, well, I'm not that evil. I'm not, I'm not that person. When other people are our standard, when humans are our standard, there's always going to be someone else that we can point to. And we like to deceive ourselves and tell us we're actually, I'm actually not all that bad. God probably likes me as I am. But as Jesus begins to expose our sin, as He begins to shine light into the darkness of our heart, it can be painful to see the truth, to see who we really are and how we're really living. But it's also painful because we've often deceived others. Because I think we're very good at painting ourselves in the best light possible. We, we, we want to appear good. We want, we want to be received by others. Maybe we do this in deception or maybe it's just it's just how we are. We just we we put on our on our smile and we put on our best behavior in times where that is necessary, but we learn as Jesus begins to shine his light into our life that with real repentance comes real honesty and real transparency. And at times that can be extremely painful. As we jump back into John 4 and we see Jesus ministering to this Samaritan woman, he begins to do just that. He begins to shine light into the darkness of her life. Where we see him in verse 16. Again, John 4, verse 16. Jesus says to her, Go call your husband and come here. This is a loaded question. Obviously, Jesus knows the answer. What does she say? Verse 17. If I can find it. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five. And the one that you have now, the man that you're living with, is not your husband either. What you have said is true. Now, I think Jesus is very gentle here. I mean, he gets right to the point. He calls it what it is, but he does so in a way that, in a way that makes her think, and he does so in a way that makes her have to answer Back. Go and get your husband. He's trying to get her to think. He's trying to get her to have to respond to that statement. She responds uh, maybe with a half-truth. It was true what she said. I don't have a husband. Uh, but it seemed that she was kind of trying to skirt that. Like, let's not, you know, let's not go there. But he shows her that he already knows. He already has the truth. He already, he already knows exactly who she is. But I think in this instance, he's fairly gentle the way that he brings her sin into the light. But he's not always this gentle. We see him dealing with the Pharisees. We see him dealing with religious hypocrites, those that are, are leading the people in God's Word. And he is very blunt, very straightforward with them at times. And I think what we're seeing is a biblical principle that, that Jesus uses that we can apply to our own engagement with unbelievers. And we find this, in 1 Peter 5.5, 5. and it's just a simple statement. You can turn there, but it's just, it's just one sentence. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
He opposes the proud and He gives grace to the humble. When Jesus encounters the proud, He corrects and He rebukes them. He reveals to them their pride. He exposes where they are wrong or He exposes their folly. But to the humble, He gives grace. He shows mercy. He offers forgiveness. But either way that He approaches these two different kinds of people, we see that sin must be exposed. And Jesus comes to do just that. As painful as it is, and as much as we do not love it, no one loves to have their junk brought out into the light, it is absolutely necessary. If I can use an illustration and kind of hearken this to a medical doctor. If you were to go to see a doctor and it was an oncologist and they were to run some tests and find a huge tumor in your body and there's an obvious treatment plan that we can go down that looks like it's going to be successful, but then the doctor decides, you know, I've really grown to like this patient. And I really hate to upset them with this bad news. I really hate to ruin their week with the the news of this tumor or maybe spoil the friendship that has grown here between myself and them. We would expect that doctor to do his duty in integrity and honesty and to tell the truth, to give it to us straight. It may be difficult, but it is absolutely necessary. And the exposing of sin is God does it in our life and maybe calls us to, to call out what is true in others' lives. It's difficult, but necessary. One of the things that it does when sin is, when His light shines into our life, is it shows us, it reveals to us our need for Him, our great need for Jesus. This, of course, happened initially when you became a believer. When you were saved, the, the light of Christ shone into your life. He began to show you and to reveal to you that you had offended a holy God and that your sin condemned you. And then He called you to Himself. He called you to faith. And He called you to repentance, revealing your great need for Him. But I think this also happens in sanctification. As Jesus exposes and roots out sin in my life day by day by day, I more and more understand my daily dependence upon Him and His grace. But also, this difficult but necessary process of, of bringing sin into the light reveals to me and to you the, the folly and the destruction that our sin brings. There's no greater way, I don't think, for a person to understand the, the destruction, the folly of their sin than to have it exposed to have it brought into the light, to have to give an account for our actions, to no longer be able to to hide in the darkness, but to have to give an account for our behavior and for our actions, where we can no longer deceive others and deceive ourselves, seek to justify our actions. The exposing of sin, the, the bringing it into the light as Jesus has done here, while often very painful, is always profitable for spiritual growth. But Jesus comes not just to expose, as if that was just the end. Let me just, let me just bring it out there for all to see. But He comes also to remove. He comes also to remove the burden of sin from you and from I. If you would turn to Luke chapter 4. 
Just one book over to the left, Luke chapter 4. The context of this verse here, verse 18 in Luke chapter 4, is that Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And He has grabbed the scroll of the book of Isaiah. And He goes to this specific verse. He begins to read before the congregation, before the assembly there in the synagogue. Luke 4.18 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim gospel. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now what is He, what is he speaking of here? What is, he, what is He talking about? Yes, Jesus comes and He's healed many blind people. He gave sight to those that are blind. But is He speaking of social oppression? Is He speaking of social captivity? Did Jesus come and open all the jail cells so that all of those that were captive would be set free? And He comes to proclaim liberty to spiritual captives. He comes to, to, to give sight to those that are spiritually blind. And He comes to give liberty to the spiritually oppressed. Because as we think about sin, when sin whispers in your ear, what is the biggest lie? What is the biggest thing that sin tries to convince us of? That you are free. That you are free. That when you engage in sin, that when you live for yourself, that when you do as you want, that you are actually finding freedom. The reality is the exact opposite. Because sin always wants to become our master. Sin always wants to dictate our lives. It always seeks to have our heart. And we see this from the very beginning, from the very first sin. Eve is told that because of God's rule, because He has one single negative commandment, one thing that she was not supposed to do, the serpent would have her believe that she was actually in bondage. That there was something that God is keeping from her. That she is missing out on all that she could know and experience. And then she eats of the tree. And her and all of humanity are plunged into bondage. Because we see that she actually had greater freedom before she ate. She actually had true free will. The ability to choose whether or not to eat of the tree. But after she eats... Her nature is corrupted by sin. It is now bent towards sin because sin always wants to dominate us, always wants to master us. And we see it here with this Samaritan woman. We read that she has had husband after husband after husband after husband. And the man that she is now with is not her husband. Maybe she has given up on getting married. What's the point? But she's obviously been seeking something in all of these relationships. And it seems that she has yet to find it. Because here she is again in another relationship with another man. And she has yet to find peace. And she has yet to find contentment. Because she is under the bondage of that sin. She is not free to do as she pleases, but she is actually enslaved by it. And Jesus has come to deliver from bondage. He has come to set captives free. He has come to remove you and He has become to remove me from the oppression of sin. 
Because we read that if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And I want to ask uh, just this question, just to kind of put this out there. Are you experiencing this bondage today? The lie that living for self, that living like the world lives, is true freedom. Because there is freedom in Jesus. There is freedom from the oppression of sin. There is freedom from addiction. Maybe you're here today and not yet a believer. And you've tried and you've tried to change your life. You've tried and tried to get better. You've tried and tried to be different only to find yourself in the same pit, in the same junk over and over and over. Christ will remove that burden today. Choose life today. Turn to Jesus today. Find freedom and forgiveness and deliverance from bondage and oppression from sin today. Maybe you are a believer and you find yourself putting yourself back under that yoke of bondage again. Going back to sin thinking you're going to find freedom there thinking you're going to find something that you never have, but for whatever reason, we continue to go back to it. Maybe you've slipped back into old habits. Maybe you've slipped back in some of your old ways. And I want to say to you today, friend, Jesus died to remove that bondage from you. He died to deliver you from sin, to deliver you from addiction, to deliver you from the folly that this world offers us. Turn back to Him. Choose life in Jesus today. And this may be difficult. Because sometimes this means bringing light upon your sin. Sometimes it means being open and transparent before the ones that we love, before God, before a friend. But allow God to work. Let the light shine on your sin. Bring it out. Repent. And let the healing process begin today. Stop running from His light. Stop running from His grace. If I could just give an illustration of uh, myself. My wife, God bless her, has heard uh, the words many times. Hopefully it was a while ago, but she's heard the words, I am not going to change for anyone. She's heard. She's laughing because it's silly, but I'm not changing for anyone. That's what I would say. You married me. Why are you trying to change me? You know, this is who I am, and this is who I'm always going to be. Because what I thought was I had absolute freedom being able to do whatever I wanted to do. And I was like Eve. If there's one rule, then now I'm in bondage and I can't handle it and I want out of it. But what I realized, what, what Jesus showed me, is I was actually held captive by my sin. I was oppressed by it. I was enslaved by it. And the thing that I thought that I thought gave me the most freedom had actually dominated me, taken over my life. But there is freedom in Jesus. There is liberty in Jesus. And lastly, as we think about Jesus coming to deal with our sin problem, He not only exposes, shines light, He not only removes the burden of sin, but He also gets down into the business of transformation. He transforms us from a man of the world to a man of God. And as Jesus encounters this woman at the well, as He encounters Nicodemus, 
as he deals with his disciples, and as he deals with you, and as he deals with me. His aim is never to leave us where we are, but to transform us from worldly individuals to godly men and women. We flew, as you most of you know this week, 3,000 miles, South Carolina, had some nice southern hospitality. But as we got into the base, uh, you see a sign, and, and I saw this statement in multiple places in Paris Island. Maybe it's the motto, I'm not sure, but it's just three words. We make Marines. And that's what they do. Day in and day out, that's their job, that's their goal, and they do a fine job at it. They make Marines, and they take Young men and women, kind of snotty nose, think they know something, they're tough, and they get off that bus and they sit on those yellow feet and D.I. gets in their face and starts screaming and I don't think they stop screaming until the last day that they're there. And their whole goal is to make Marines, is to transform a civilian into a Marine. Thirteen weeks, young kid comes in and out comes a Marine. And so I was thinking about that statement, we make Marines. And I was thinking about our Lord, and I was thinking about the work of redemption that He does, and I was thinking about the cross with a sign above it that says, I make Christians. Because as Jesus comes to deal with our sin, He comes to transform us. He comes to change us. And we see this in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says that we all, with unveiled face, that is those spiritual blinders, have now been removed beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What is that image? That is the image of Jesus Christ. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And as we stepped on that base, the transformation was obvious. These were now Marines. Uh, We saw that in our own daughter, and we saw that in the 439 other Marines that graduated on that day. That 13-week process had produced a new person. They were changed, and they were now proud, head held high, wearing that uniform boldly. As we think about Jesus and His transformation of process of making Christians, it's no 13-week process. (laughs) It's no 13-week process, but it is a lifelong process. And there is going to be times, as we all know, of great growth. Or man, we are just repenting daily where sin seems to have no grasp on us, where we're actively pursuing God and His Word and in prayer, where we're just on fire for the Lord. We can't help but share our faith and tell about all that Christ has done in our lives. And there is just slow times, struggle, where it seems like the zeal and the fire we once had is just so dim. Maybe we backslide in some old sin that we thought we had finally conquered. In all of these seasons, we learn once again that the transformation that Christ brings is a lifelong journey. If I can be cliche, it is a marathon and not a sprint. And as Jesus points out the sin in the life of this Samaritan woman, his heart is never just to expose, never just to to condemn her, never just to call her out, but he desires to remove that burden, to deliver her from sin's grasp, and then to transform her into a true believer as Jesus makes Christians. So briefly, I want to make two observations as I did last week. 
uh, in regards to this text. And the first one is in regards to evangelism. As we see Jesus evangelizing this Samaritan woman, I think we can learn much from his encounter here. And I think one thing that we learn from this short section today is that if, if we never get to the problem of sin, if it's just Jesus loves you and wants you to come to Him, that is true. But if we never get to the problem of sin, then we're just like that doctor who has painted a rosy picture for the patient, but has conveniently left out the fact that there is a malignant tumor that is slowly killing him. Because the Gospel is such good news, and we talked about this earlier in Sunday School. The Gospel is such amazingly good news because the law is such bad news. Because the reality is we can never live up to the standards of the law. And that's why the Gospel is such good news. But without an understanding of the problem of sin, without a person knowing they've sinned against a holy God, the Gospel is just kind of, it's okay news. It's not all that special. Now some might push back to this and say, well, hey, we're not Jesus. And we don't have the insight that He has. Uh, he knew about her specific sin. He was able to speak right into her life. And it's true. We're not prophets. We don't, have, we don't have insight into the spiritual condition of a person's soul, into the history of how they lived. But we do have insight into the life of every single human on this earth. And we find it in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And you know it. All have sinned fallen short of the glory of God. We don't need to know anyone's specific sin, just that they have broken God's law. And just like that tumor, it is slowly killing them. And they are hopeless without divine treatment. Without the Gospel, they will perish in their sin. So I think we can learn here as we seek to evangelize, whether it's stranger, whether it's mom, whether it's coworker, whatever. If we never get to the problem of sin. We haven't really addressed the full issue, the full gospel. And then lastly, today, for us as the church, for me, I'll speak for myself, first and foremost, this is not any sort of pointing fingers. It hurts to have sin exposed. It hurts. It really does. It hurts even more for Christians that have walked with Jesus for years that are supposed to be good and have those things behind them. But it hurts in all of us. It hurts to come to terms with something in our lives that has to go, that may even cause damage when it is revealed. I mean, a person could lose a job if something's happening that is dishonest, but you have to go and say, hey, this is what's been going on. It may hurt a loved one initially when we come out and bear our soul, the reality of what's taking place, but there is freedom in Jesus. And there is peace and joy it may hurt for a season, but there is no life hiding your sin in the darkness. There is only guilt and shame. But like that Samaritan woman, Jesus knows it already. He knows it all. He knows who we are. He knows every aspect of our life. And when we hide our sin in the darkness, when we try to keep things from people or from the Lord, all we're doing is pushing Him away and hardening our hearts. 